I've spent a tremendous amount of time in cannabis as a cultivator trafficker prior, and then I got into medical cannabis about 11 years ago as a dispensary operator. During that time, I was involved with the release of uh, CBD, so I was one of the original CBD release people. I was involved in the development of Canatonic. I created the first vertical nursery model in America, and in that process, was able to be involved with the Blue Ribbon Commission, creating the regulatory process in California to help understand the levels of Welcome, this is Milton, the host of the Cannabis Business Podcast. I'd like to welcome Kevin Jodry of California, 40-year veteran of the cannabis industry. Enjoy the show. How did you get started with cannabis? My neighborhood was a crime zone, so I was raised in a New England area that was rough. What I noticed was that the people who uh, smoked cannabis and dealt cannabis, they typically seemed happier. That caught me as a kid, that the people that were um, what we would call cool, we're, we're cannabis users, cannabis traffickers. And I remember smoking my, my first uh, bowl of weed. One of my friend's dads was a, a police officer, and he had confiscated cannabis and pipes from people, and he took it home. And my friend, Kenny, stole it from his dad, and we smoked it on the roof of my house. So when I was 12, we're smoking confiscated cannabis from somebody from, you know, confiscated pipes. I just enjoyed the feeling so much. I really enjoyed being high. My life was kind of hard at that time. It was this beautiful escape, but it didn't suck you away and it didn't change you in a way that, that damaged you. To me, I, what I found was that cannabis was this incredible social bridge and it allowed people of dissimilar backgrounds, circumstances, ethnicities, sexual orientations, religion. For a few moments while you smoked, you saw a common bond. It's something that just caught me completely that there was this just elegance to cannabis. And I became infatuated with it and I started to sell it and grow it. And in 83, I ended up catching a case and got dragged out of high school in handcuffs. And I spent 11th grade in training school. When I, when I got out, I, you know, I questioned, you know, was this still the right choice? And I went into the military to escape the neighborhood. And when I was in the military, I was a diver. So I, I did salvage diving for the military and I used to get loaned out to the DOJ and the DEA in the mid eighties. And I used to get dropped out of helicopters onto boats filled with drugs. And on one of these drug raids, I got to spend some time with the drug runners that had a clean boat, but they were known notorious cannabis traffickers. And we were having a conversation and they said, you know, Kev, the future is going to be cannabis. Whatever you had done prior it was stigmatized, but the truth is the future is going to change that view. It actually drove me back into cannabis where I started to study plant science, botany. And when I got out of the military, I went right back into cannabis and I've never left. The career path really started probably 89. I was young. I was involved in selling cannabis and growing cannabis. And that would have been in the, the early 80s. And then during the military years, which was, you know, 85 to 89, I wasn't involved in cannabis except for drug interdiction on a, on a global level where I was working for the DOJ and the DEA. And it was so odd because, you know, this is my prior life and now I'm doing enforcement. But when I got out in 89, the day I got out of the military, I picked up all my grow lights and I used the government vehicle and I was in uniform and I bought all my grow equipment from a place called Berkeley Indoor Garden. And I picked up my lights and I was living in Oakland at the time. I started to produce indoor cannabis at that moment. It allowed me to tie into all these different groups in the Bay Area that I typically hadn't because I was from Rhode Island where we're predominantly white. All of a sudden, it gave me this access into a, a Mexican, Filipino, and black culture. It changed my life in a way where I got to see a, a human connection on a radically different plane. And it allowed me to be able to be in the Bay during this incredible time when the Bay Area was just exploding in music and culture. And cannabis was this, this thing that I was able to be part of, but it also allowed me to enter any of these spheres because I was producing really good cannabis. And I was also moving cannabis in sales. In about 92, I came up to Humboldt County and I, was, I used to do a lighthouse restoration. And so I came up to Humboldt in 92 to do a lighthouse restoration. And I loved the area so much that I stayed. And I've never left. So I've been in Humboldt since 92. So over half my adult life now, I've been in Humboldt. And once I got to Humboldt, it was basically the same thing where cannabis opened up all these doors. It allowed me to enter the industry. And because I had a background in technical construction, my family was all master tradesmen. 
it allowed me to be able to take that skill to create and build coupled up with scientific knowledge of plant science. And I became a really good consultant. And I started to work on a lot of operations, refining their processes. I was a genetics collector at the time. So I was able to put high quality genomic forms into operations and optimize the success of the ops. Prop 215 came out 96. By 97, I had a 215 from Dr. Micaria. So Dr. Todd was one of the first 215 doctors in the nation, and he and I became friendly, and I got my first 215. But I never considered myself a medical cultivator or grower because I wasn't involved in medical cannabis. I was basically a commercial operator. Probably 11, 12 years ago, I got involved in medical cannabis when I took over an operation as a cultivation director. And that really what changed my life, I would say, because it, it put me into the situation where I was acutely aware of people's condition. And I had never been exposed to people who were suffering so much in this intimate form. And it absolutely changed my view of cannabis and the, the reason why I was in cannabis. From that point forward, it's all been these type of legitimate operations where it was to move forward in a form that would allow me to stay in cannabis the rest of my life. I, I never want to leave. Someone asked me, what's the next thing I'm doing? And I said, dying. <laughs> I'm never getting out. Can you tell me a little bit about, from your perspective, the history of cannabis? You know, cannabis in California goes back a long time because you've always had individuals from other countries that consumed cannabis that, that moved into California. So the Asians that came here as slave laborers brought cannabis with them. The Mexicans brought cannabis with them. Blacks that had moved from Jamaica, the islands, Africa brought cannabis with them. All the places where cannabis was indigenous. We would say indigenous over a period of time because we look at cannabis, we say it basically all derives from, say, the Nepal region, and cannabis then moves globally. But the groups of individuals that came to California that really created the cannabis culture to me were what we would call, say, you know, minorities prior. Now, white people in California are a minority, but the minorities, slaves, blue collar people. And to me, that was a beautiful thing because it allowed this to spread in a different way, in a very homegrown way, very grassroots way, very normal way, bottom up, not top down. And top down meaning big money creating a thing. It was from desire and love of a thing that forced it. California has this back to earth movement, back to land movement in the late 60s. The Vietnam War is still in, in function. A lot of these people that leave uh, the, the war and come back have no situation that's comfortable. The regions we're in up here in the northern regions have been heavily logged. And so there was very affordable land out in the middle of nowhere. And these individuals settle up here to get away from society. But what happens is they start to grow the herb they brought back with them from Asia. It becomes this uh, lifestyle, and they start to sell and grow, and it starts to blossom and become a, a minor industry. And then these individuals are all global travelers and, and gathered stock you know, globally, so they don't mind going back over to Afghanistan, back to Pakistan, back to India, back to the Caribbean, back to Africa, to gather genomic forms and work with them here on their properties. And then you get into 1983. And you have the campaign against marijuana planting, and that's the federal government's intervention on cannabis. And it took cannabis from, you know, basically $1,200 a pound up to almost $6,000 a pound. So it instantly created this unbelievable incentive for people to grow financially. And that's when the real explosion begins. And at that time, it changed the demographics of who were in cannabis dramatically because prior to 83, we would say it was simple people. Uh, rural agrarian, people who wanted a uh, different lifestyle. But after 83, what you really saw was it was the industrial loggers who had been misplaced from the excessive logging. So the logging industry collapses. There's all these logging families, all these individuals with the ability to carve roads, cut trees, bring in water. They realize, hey, our lives are hard. We're looking at these hippies. We're looking at all these uh, counterculture people making money. We're going to get involved. And once you saw the loggers get involved in cannabis, it became industrial cannabis. And that's when you saw the indoor revolution explode because you had to hide the pot. You couldn't grow it outside. And all these things were huge because that's really, to me, where you started to see a lot of the environmental damage begin. 
because prior to that, the people who were living up here were really more stewards of the land. And then the money came in and it drove um, a monetization as the primary goal versus quality of life on a holistic level. It is where we are now. 83 was when it changed and it moved all the way to 96 until 215 came in. And when 215 came in, it created a medical defense that allowed individuals to say, hey, I'm allowed to have so many plants. I'm allowed to have so much space legally. And it kind of created the renaissance of cannabis again, where individuals who prior that were afraid to cultivate could now come forward with the 215. They had a, a medical legitimacy. They didn't have to feel stigmatized. They had the ability to cultivate at a level. And it was this beautiful renaissance for a while where you started to see all the old varieties come out. And it was this lovely thing. And what happened was the storefronts opened up, the dispensary models opened up. That kind of changed cannabis again, because it started to favor um, specific types of cannabis in specific geographic areas. And so we started to change the gene pool. We started to shorten up what was available. We started to have more and more production. And we started to see the industrialization of medical cannabis take place. So just like 83 was this watershed where you went from holistic cannabis to commercial cannabis. In the 215 area, we went through the same thing, where at first when it started out, people were able to cultivate and enjoy the grow. Then all of a sudden, it became this, this incredibly industrialized push. And then we get into what we call legal cannabis now, where we're at such an industrial level of admittance. So the, the difference now is that in order to actually participate in this new industry, one has to be highly capitalized. And so it's a financial barrier to entry. And it really takes away anybody who's not highly capitalized, funded, investable. It's a destruction of the craft industry. It's a destruction of what I would call the holistic industry. For people who cultivated small amounts of cannabis, they were stewards on their property. They really understood cannabis on a different level because they were so intimately involved in it. So now we're in this new transition as we go forward. It's going to be very troubling as we as we move forward because the majority of the people that I know don't have the ability to get licenses. I was somebody who asked himself honestly a decade ago, what's the future going to look like? I knew that it, it was going to look like this. And so I started to do my homework on what happens when industries explode. And I use the computer industry as my textbook. And I started to study what happens when you begin a grassroots business and what, what happens when the money comes in and what position does one have to play? And so it allowed me to get a head start, so to speak, on what to do, because I knew that I wanted to remain in cannabis for the rest of my life. This was a place that I couldn't have been any happier. And it wasn't just because I enjoyed the income, but I, I enjoyed being able to share cannabis with people on this level. It, it was just such a human aspect. That's where you're seeing these changes come forward now is the diminishment of the individual, the rise of the corporation, and it's, it's, it's an oligarchy model. So a few major companies will control an industry, and then the rest of the people will fight for the small share of the pie. And it's troubling. Sometimes, you know, I get survivor's guilt because I have these permits in my hand, which I'm grateful for. But at the same time, there's many friends around me who don't, and they're scared to death. And, and I'm scared that I'm going to get eclipsed too, but at least I have a tool. At least I have basic ability to move forward, and many don't. And so it's this incredible divisiveness within your community of seeing those that are not going to be able to move forward legally, and they're about to be persecuted even heavier, versus us that have permits where we might just financially get broke. So it's a strange time. Well, what do you think? about what's happening in Canada. Do you have any sense of what's happening or do you have an opinion? I mess around in Canada too. Some of the LPs are involved in American operations and I've served as a consultant on some of those operations. And I was just up in Vancouver speaking at a regenerative conference and I got to uh, meet a bunch of the growers that are putting together operations on the craft level up in the Kootenays, the Vancouver Islands. I went up to Canada in the early 90s to get genetics from growers. I was a genetic trafficker, so I moved plants all over the place. I would gather genetics from anywhere I could find that had high quality so I could use them as a trade commodity, and it would allow me to access other genetic forms from other people because I had things of quality to trade. To see Canada, which had an incredible industry 
get crushed out through legalization. That bothered me because I knew that Canada was just like the U.S. They were basically excluded from the new industry. And now they're starting to open up the micro businesses. They're starting to open up the small cultivations. And so that was incredible. But the Canadian LPs are interesting because you can use the stock market legally to gather funds. So what they're doing is they're using that funding to be able to purchase commoditized uh, power in the U.S. So they're able to take the monies, gather operations here, start to acquire and create the model that they're going to utilize in the U.S. on a global level. It's kind of frightening because in the past, when you were you know, trying to sell cannabis, you would be selling it, you know, is your pot better than your neighbor's pot? Now it's, can you produce the same level of cost as a $14 billion LP? And that's a tough competitor. You've got companies that are valued any, you know, 10 to $14 billion. I mean, that's mind boggling how quick it happened. And to look at some of these million square foot operations and the technology that's coming out is incredible. Canada is, um, and I'm, I'm happy for Canada that they got a chance to jump on it because it allows them to be able to make money off the economy. I, I'm grateful to see Mexico moving forward, Colombia moving forward, places that historically did production. Hopefully the, the people that did the production still get to make some monies, still get to have some abilities. Canada's unique in that sense where the funding just went through the roof there. And so Canada is like a monster in the room right now. But once the other nations start to open up, we'll see what happens. Once the U.S. goes legal, it'll change the entire global scheme because we'll, we'll treat it, to me, we'll treat it like we treat corn. And with genomic manipulation, and I don't mean GMO, but just through uh, good breeding practices and mechanization and efficiency, you'll be able to do million acres in the Midwest that I don't know anybody that can compete. Nobody's really competing with us in corn and wheat production. So I kind of see cannabis going in that route on the industrial level, you know, for extractions, for oils, for medicinal forms. And so craft cannabis hopefully stays alive in Canada, in the Kootenay range, in the Vancouver Islands, in BC itself, probably going on to the East coast of Canada. You have some fringes through the middle of the country. I think it's a little cold and rough to actually have any, any real true success, but in small, you know, minor forms. But I think Canada and the U.S. are really similar in that, that they both have clusters of people who've been growing for decades that are fighting for some ability to survive and not just financially, but also culturally for their way of life. You know, I'm just like you, I'm a little concerned about, a lot concerned about the microgrowers. The door is being opened now. If you had to give advice to both microgrowers to get started and also policymakers, because of the the illicit nature of cannabis for so many years that was secretive, the impact on the economy was, I think, radically misunderstood. And many of these regions, they don't understand that the majority of people in these pockets were completely cannabis financially driven. So that all the money coming into the region, 80, 80 to 90% of it was coming through cannabis. When you start to remove that income, what do you replace it with? And how do you retrain all these individuals that are highly skilled at producing craft cannabis? And I think that the issue is, it's with, same with the U.S. What we like is we like simplicity with regulation. And so U.S. favors a large corporate model because it's a lot easier to regulate three major corporations that control a billion pounds than it is to control a million people who create a billion pounds. But the problem is that you're taking the, the monies that were put into these communities and you're removing them and you're not replacing them with anything. And so I think that what takes place is that you end up having a society failure because of it. What needs to take place is a form of regulation that has a control, but one that understands the reality that tremendous numbers of people are absolutely dependent on these incomes and that there is no pad to fall onto. There is no new training they can instantly go do that'll cover what they've done in, in terms of finances. And so on the regulator piece, I think because they've seen cannabis people as you know, illegal individuals, it diminishes them as human beings. And the fact is that now we've, we've normalized cannabis. We know that it has incredible medical benefits. We know that it has a, a very, very a few side effects that are negative. We know that it's an incredible commoditized item globally. 
there's a global acceptance for the first time. Instead of trying to punish these people into compliance, it's more of how do we create a compliant framework that allows them to be able to utilize the infrastructures they have and slowly move forward and use the stick to beat those that don't want to move, but make sure you have a carrot for those that do. You can't just use the stick. And I think that that's really the main issue is that these people don't need to be beaten. That the fact that they were bold and cultivated when it was not accepted doesn't mean that they were immoral. And now that we have an acceptance on a, almost a global level, it really needs to be reflected in how policy is written and how regulations are enacted and how enforcement is driven. And so for the policy, a kinder approach would do a much better job and you'd end up having a far higher level of compliance but participation to where you wouldn't have people who are running the other way to do as much black market as they could. And we use the word black market, they call it unregulated, unlicensed, there's a million names for it now, but the main thing is illegal. So anything that was illegal, if you give people opportunity, most people will take the choice as long as the money's there. And then we know this through statistical analysis of, of crime standards, where if the economy's strong, crime is down. And when the economy's weak, crime is up. And it's the same thing in the cannabis industry. And they have to really take a look and say, hey, they're not criminals. We don't need to force them to be criminals by making it so difficult for people to come into compliance. For the operators, they need to be very, very clear about what they're trying to do and their level of efficiency and their level of financial management. Because most people, when they get involved in, in cannabis now, they're not aware of the unbelievable cost it takes to actually get yourself up to process with the code, how much it costs for the permits, difficulty it takes in getting your product to be marketed. And so I tell people you know, very frequently that the best thing that you can do is team up. A lot of times it's best that we don't all have a farm. What's best is if you have the ability to have the farm and I have the ability to be the marketer and someone else is the scientist who knows how to be able to in interface with extraction, the new forms of cannabis in how we uh, consume it, that you can team up. Because the main point is to survive the transition and allow the industry to build from there. But I think for a lot of people, their dream of being in cannabis blinds them to the economic reality of starting a business. And because prior cannabis was pretty lucrative because there was no taxes and the prices were higher in general, it led so many people to believe that that was going to be the condition today. And I think a lot of people that weren't in cannabis believe that also. So I see people who were never in cannabis that want to get into cannabis. And I watch them taking a financial beating because they have this preconception that cannabis is big money, little effort. And it was never little effort. It was big money, but it was always a lot of effort. And it was effort that they couldn't see. So they misjudged. And they now get in and they realize, hey, I mortgaged my home and now I'm homeless and broke. And it's the wrong decision. And so I, you know, I, I think that most people need to really sit down with a, an accountant or a good bookkeeper and have them give them the honest numbers of, does your plan make sense from a straight data point of view? And then this way, you as the operator, you provide the emotion, you provide the skill. But if you're not hard, solid, low margin business knowledgeable, you better get somebody in your life who is, who can tell you your plan makes sense or your plan doesn't make sense. And if it doesn't, don't invest. If it's a plan that has an ability, but you don't have the ability to do it yourself, look to your neighbors. Don't necessarily run to investors because the points are expensive. Some of these in California, we're talking 38 to 52 points on investment. So if you grab investment capital, you're talking 38 to 52 points off the top just for that money. And so for the rest of the time you're in that business, you're giving away 38 to 52% of the company. That's a lot of money if you're a small operator. And if you're a multi-billion dollar investment, well, that's different. But if you're smaller, you can't afford to give away that much. And so what you need to do is, you know, same thing that you do with most companies. You privately invest, you look to your family, you look to friends, and you figure out how to work together so that you can slowly move forward and you'll be able to get a chunk of the market share. And if you can get a piece of the market and you can build a small brand, you have, a, you have an acquisition ability later 
And if your company is strong enough to be acquired, that means it's strong enough to also exist on its own. But I think so much of it has to be an honest view of this situation, and you have to see it in a non-emotional point of view financially, and then you provide the emotion which drives you. The origin story of cannabis was in difficult climates in mountainous areas. You said Nepal, I would say Hindu Kush or that area. A lot of the times we grow plants in perfect conditions. We want good lighting. We want the terpenes to be what we want them to be. But ideally, you want to grow a plant that is comfortable with temperature changes or humidity changes. Can you give me a sense of the history of what's happened to cannabis? Because of the illegal situation, we've done all sorts of not so good things with the plant, and maybe we should be more aware of it. When it comes to cannabis, if you're, if you're a cultivator, what you're trying to do is you're trying to match latitude. And so you're trying to find cannabis. So say you're in, you're in Canada, you're up in, we're in 39 here in Humboldt, you're in, you know, 48. And so you try to find cannabis that's coming from those same similar regions uh, globally, because that means it's been acclimated to the angle of the sun, which is your inclination, which affects how the plant functions because it, it prisms the light. And so if you look at cannabis from zero on the equator to 20 on the latitude, both north and south, we would call that inspirational cannabis, ethereal cannabis, spiritual cannabis, because the people in that cluster had far better living conditions. They had more water, balmier environments, uh, easier living. But when we go from 20 to 40, you're talking about some of the most brutal conditions in the world, like Afghanistan and Pakistan. And in those places, you get more of a sedative cannabis. That's where CBD really rises up. People that needed medical cannabis because their life was tougher by virtue of the fact where they lived. And so we take all this incredible ethereal cannabis uh, stuff from the closer to the equator in India, closer to the equator in Colombia, closer to the equator Africa, things that were chosen to expand the mind. Those varieties got cut out of circulation. And we went with these heavy sedative narcotic varieties. Something happens that I, I came across about 11 or 12 years ago as a discovery that I couldn't understand why the customers that were coming through my shop were buying what they were buying. It didn't make sense to me. They were all buying very heavy, powerful cannabis, and they didn't look like the people who would smoke it. It was housewives. It was older gentlemen. I just couldn't see the correlation. And so I did a random sample of 1,000 people. And what I found was that the opiate epidemic that had exploded globally, they were using certain types of cannabis to offset the opiate use. And so what we've, we've done is we've created a society that's opiate addicted, and they have to choose cannabis that replaces that. That's this heavy, high myrcene, high caropoline level cannabis, which is, you know, those terpene groups. And myrcene under combustion is, a, is an anesthetic. So you, you change the type of cannabis that's produced and you change the type of reactions that people have from using cannabis. The genetic connection that individuals need to make is what's the best cannabis for them. And in the regions that you have globally, you have access to these materials, just not necessarily in your specific. And so you being in Canada, have access to incredible Canadian material that's been hybridized and chosen to work in those indoor and outdoor environments in your area, but you're never going to be able to grow something from Southeast Asia to fruition. And, and people in Southeast Asia would love to have some sedative cannabis too, because they might have sore body and they would love to be able to have pain relief in addition to the mental acuity, mental expansion. And so I think that you know, the globalization of cannabis is really a, a godsend because what it does, it allows cannabis to be able to be grown everywhere that it once was. And then people would then have it, an option to choose the things they wanted versus what works in my light depth greenhouse that lets me get five runs per year, that lets me get, you know, 80 grams a square foot so that my margin is 17%. And when you're talking about, you know, a, a cannabis in that context, it really cuts out 90% of all varieties. And so you end up shrinking down the population of genomic forms that can be used. People begin to believe that that's okay. And it's kind of like the same you know, conversation with the rainforest where 
you know, we want to cut the rainforest down to grow date palm so we can do oil. But the problem is we're removing all this plant material that we really don't understand. And when we remove it, we take away any future access to it. And then we discover, hey, there was incredible properties in these plants and we no longer have them to use in our world. It's a sin. You're committing a, a crime in the future by killing off what exists today. So I think that cultivators need to be aware of these things. And I think that when you're talking about turf profiles, turf profiles are affected by many things. And when it comes to permaculture, which is closed loop, where you're using um, a regenerative form, try to do the least amount of impact, healthiest situation, what you end up having is the healthiest plants. The terpene profiles, they don't always want to be buffered. Terps are uh, bioprotectant. So in, in not just an attractant, but also they create a bioprotectant for the plant to either ward off things that would eat them, to help create a defense against environmental issues, to be able to attract beneficial insects, to colonize around them so that they can eat the things that eat cannabis. And all of that comes from a balanced system. And so what you see now is, you know, uh, chemically driven cannabis, which is very efficient because it allows you to run it through drip systems. It allows you to run it through fertigation. It allows you to do very um, controlled situations, but it's missing. From someone who's been growing for as many years as I have, organic biologically based cannabis, to me, can't be touched when you compare it to chemically grown cannabis. They're two different animals. And chemically grown cannabis almost always has to have the twin, which is chemically used pesticides, growth regula regulators, and fungicides. Whereas biologically driven cannabis, we can use biologic models that work with it because the plant's own natural defense systems are activated from this biology and from the relationship that the plant forms with the microbial life in the soil. And so the combination of the living soil, the living plant, the living world gives you the best option to me because you do the least damage and get the highest quality product. A friend of mine asked me this question I asked you about natural soil and amending that mm -hmm. soil. Let's just say permaculture setup where it can go commercial. And they call it, you know, the no-till. The no-till is outside. We don't break up the food wet. We don't break up the soil. We allow all the microbial strands to create this incredible relationship, this network. And indoor, they're beginning it too. And so you're starting to see these, these you know, stunning examples of flower. Because I'm not against indoor cultivation. I'm not a, a zealot on it must be sun-grown only. Because the truth of it is many people don't have that ability. And if you're not in a climate that allows it, you shouldn't have to buy my product. You should be able to be allowed to create your own product. Because it's not for me to say what one should and shouldn't do because it benefits me because I'm in a place where good cannabis grows. And so if you have the ability to use electric lights and that's the tool you use, then that's what you use. But what you try to do best possible is create an organic bottom end so that the plant has this living matrix to work with. And we're seeing it in a lot of the operations in uh, like Las Vegas. So Las Vegas, you're seeing some incredible no-till operations. Green Life Productions is one of them. Uh, there's another guy in Oregon, uh, Josh Freeland, where he's doing some beautiful no-till work. And these are no-till beds where they build them, and they basically allow the leaf to fall off the plant. They put companion plants in that help drive um, health and vitality. They bring in, in banker plants that pest control can be colonized on. They bring in plants that create pollen that the, the predators can eat while they're waiting to eat bugs that come in. So you can create a natural environment indoor. And what we see with those operations is a better quality flower and a lot less flower loss to rotten mold. And so really the efficiency is not bad. And I think the problem that you have with cannabis production now is that your accountant and your investor is the ones running the operation and neither one of them could grow mold in a shower. And they're telling you how to run an operation. And so the accountant should never run an operation. They should just make sure you stay within margin. And the investor, if he was a good cannabis operator, he wouldn't be the investor. He'd be the grower. And so what you have to do is, you know, you have to really be able to get your investment group and the accounting group to be able to understand that less canopy, less amount per square foot 
doesn't mean less in the jar, less margin on sale. They're not mutually connected that same way. You could have an incredible product that sells at a great price with less loss, and that offsets some of the other things that you gain from these, you know, heavy chemical push, what we would call industrialized models. So I think that you can, especially in greenhouses where if you could build the soil, you could actually go in the ground. If in your area where it's colder, you could use raised beds and heat the bottoms with hydronics so that you're able to keep the soil at a you know, good 68 degrees so that your microbial life does well. Anything under 50, you start to really have a complete uh, slowdown on all biological activity. Anything over 85, it's just too hot. If you can keep yourself in that little sweet spot, you end up having incredible growth. I think as we go forward, the, the world's population will start to really see that chemical agriculture has been something that's been a terrible, terrible thing. It was really begun from the post-World War II petrochemical uh, munitions industry. So we take waste that we can't use, turn it into food-grown material, and look at the quality of the nutrition in people since. And I think that cannabis is one of those components that allow people to be able to mentally, when they consume it, say, whoa. There's a real difference between chemical industrial pot and organically derived industrial pot because they're both done on a commercial level, but one of them is a sense of care and understanding of this incredible relationship that happens between plants and the soil and the environment that's so complex that for us to try to repeat it with a simple chemical squirt, it just doesn't do it. And I believe that there will be a renaissance. Do you have any tips on companion planting or what could go well together with the grow? If you can run a bed that's fallow, we, like outside on the farm, you can alternate varietals and beds, but you can run any of your legumes and they're going to do nitrogen fixation. Plus they, they're easy to plow under your till over the top. You can throw another layer of compost over it and it breaks it down. It forms a nice nitrogen source. It seems like the thistle plants seem to drive a higher level of terpenes. There's some kind of re response between them. Anything that's going to allow you to be able to have a quick decomposition for the, for the soil that we're trying to develop on a deeper level, we can use any of these deep drilling radishes, things that have an ability to send roots down deeply because those roots will penetrate the tougher clay. In, here in Humboldt, we have a lot of clay, and it can penetrate into the clay and then die. And then it leaves that humus in the clay. And then that humus can then break down and start to form the organic material needed to create real tilt. So use what you have available. A lot of people think you need to import plants, but you can use whatever you have. The, we had guys working on the farm that would, would take in all the thistle and turned it into an incredible fermented plant juice. And you would use that as a foliar spray, as a bioprotectant and also use it in the compost tea as a soil uh, inoculant to drive uh, higher levels of soil activity. And so I think that anywhere on earth, the same principles can follow. And I mean, I learned that from Elaine Ingham, where there's no soil on earth you can't cultivate in. The, every soil index on earth has an ability to grow plants. The key is to bind it together with some form of compost tea initially to get your microbial populations up and then make sure that you're using decomposing material to drive a higher level of, of long-term fertility. So anyone anywhere can grow. It doesn't have to be ultra-complicated. The biological process is ultra-complicated in, in its complexity. But for us as individuals, we just have to understand that we want to replicate what's occurred for millennia right outside your front door. So I used to do a lot of microbe gathering where we would put out uh, rice boxes and gather indigenous microbes so we could use those microbes and then brew them and then add them to the material so that we were using the things that were already here available and I would go mine stuff from swampy areas uh, leaf litter and then we would put them together so that there was a, a biological consortium that you could utilize to help the plant exist and survive these are all methodologies that are really inexpensive and I, I got into the, the mine in my IMOs from some Filipinos that I saw that had been holding their culture almost like sourdough for a long time. And they passed it down through the generations. And it made me realize that we didn't know what we were doing. I realized that we had been completely misled for years about cultivation. 
And that if we really copied people who had little to use and succeeded, we would be able to have that same level of efficiency. And also we'd see plants in a more natural manner, which would then let us understand what the plant was supposed to give us to begin with. When you run all the plants on the same methodologies, meaning chemical, they all start to taste the same. They, they become similar. But when they're in an organic biology, they don't. They actually start to show you what they are naturally, just like under natural sunlight. Sunlight's the same thing. You change the morphology of the plant depending on the spectra you're using, and full sun to me gives you the, the best result. About 11 years ago, a physician approached me when I was the, the director of a facility, and, and they said they believed that CBD was this incredible substance that was going to change the world. It was such a reaching hypothesis that I almost didn't believe him because he said it was going to do so much. But I realized that if it, even if it did 10% of what he claimed, then there would be benefit. So we committed floor space to the trial. This individual named Heine from Resin Seeds came over with the genetic material. And him, this other guy, a friend of mine, um, Dreddy Aaron and Dr. William Courtney, went through and created the canatonic line. No one knew what to do with it at the time. No one knew how to, how to market it. Nobody wanted to buy cannabis that didn't get you high. There was almost zero value in it. But I understood that the people that we used in the trials, I saw what it did for them. And I ended up giving away over 150,000 free clones. And what that did was it allowed tremendous numbers of people to be able to get their hands on CBD material. And then I funded research that allowed people to be able to utilize the material and then have access to labs and extraction so they could create the medicines they needed for their purposes so they could get the correct titration. The dosages were crucial and how you deliver it and how you work with it. And none of this information was, was now it's mainstream, but at that time it was brand new. And so I just drove it into the system because I had the ability, I had a successful operation that let me subsidize the work. I had an ability to, to see so many people in my day-to-day -day life with cannabis that it let me drive this product into, this, into these groups. It changed to me. It changed the way people perceive cannabis. And that's what my real goal was, was I wanted people to be able to legitimize cannabis in all forms. That people who use cannabis to feel good, to get high, that wasn't a bad thing. That's a state of mind. That's a state of being. So people who had pain issues don't believe people who have mental depression is valid. And people who are depressed don't believe that you're in pain. Both factions needed to be able to find a common ground. And once you were able to put that into the market, expose it, and because I did all the free clones and all the free CBD work and all the CBD packages and all the medicine for free all these years, what it did was it changed the view of the mainstream that we as cannabis career people weren't bad people. And by being kind and allowing cannabis to do the work and not to take the credit because it wasn't any of us that did anything. All we were doing was putting people in a position to utilize a substance. It normalized cannabis to a tremendous number of people. And so I'm one of the original CBD people in the nation that drove it through the U.S. And at the time, I didn't see it as such a big deal. I just knew that it was the right thing to do. 11 years later, I'm, I'm known as this individual who created this massive portion of people who got into cannabis for that purpose. But I never saw it as that. I just saw it as this incredibly needful thing. And I had a career of doing large-scale operations you know, in the illicit market. I knew that this was the thing that would allow people who were very anti-cannabis to be able to see the rest of us who were cannabis as good people too. And I think it worked. We have a radically different perspective now with cannabis in all forms because of it. And I'm not saying it was only me that did it, but at that time, there was only a few of us in the whole nation that were doing it. I think three total, me, Wade Louder, and, and Lawrence Ringo. And so Wade's still alive. Lawrence, who was a good friend of mine, passed away. And myself, and I'm still here. One of the questions I like to ask guests is uh, what strains they like. Strains might not be the best description. Somebody called it a cultivar. I also know that sativa and indica are just nice labels, but so much crossbreeding that it's not easy to say what strains a person likes. Part of the reason I asked the question is I like to educate people and myself a little bit more about cannabis that I wouldn't know. Maybe you can tell me about you know your preferences or what you think about cannabis. I like different things for different reasons. 
And so I'm somebody who likes to have a um, very alert Congolese, something I like. I like African genetics. I like electric highs where you're completely awake, very lucid. I like to consume that during the daytime. I like to have heavier, earthier, what we would call, you know, Pakistanis, Afghanis in the evening when I want to relax. I like to use CBD varietals, but I don't smoke them. I make them into tinctures. And so when I feel stressed out, when, my, when I feel uh, inflammatory issues, I'm getting older, arthritis, I'll take CBD tinctures. For me, I, I love cannabis enough to where I can consume a tremendous amount of it, meaning that I have access to so many different types. But what I really like to experience is something that has a, a, a very nice flavor profile to where the, there's a complexity to it. And I like a balanced effect, meaning that it, it, if it's going to be electric, I want it to be electric and then come down normally. If it's extremely sedative, I want it to relax me and then come down. I don't like up and down, up and down. I don't like it to feel abbreviated. So a cultivated variety is something that's been chosen for specific purposes, specific usages, specific desire. So I hold a library of cultivars chosen for multiple reasons. Typically, it works in the environment that I've chosen it for, and it has a quality to the user. So the user has a very uh, a strong attraction to it. Some cannabis varieties that I hold, I have one that has an incredible ability to control spasticity. And so we don't understand why it does what it does, but anyone that we've ever given it to that had spasms, that's people with MS, ALS, neuropathy, spinal damage, anything that makes you have uncontrollable spasmodic issues, this one absolutely shortens that completely. I've seen it help so many individuals. I don't happen to have those problems, and I'm grateful for it. Being in medical cannabis lets you really see people's health issues. But I love that cannabis variety for how it makes me feel relaxed. That's the LA Pure Kush, that Robert's Congo, that out of Canada is incredible. I like some of the hybrids where they're taking old school flavored varieties and then mixing them with some of these newer varietals with higher potency packages. And then you sift through the lines to find the one that has the right balance with the right flavors. And when you smoke it, I always want to feel enhanced. If the cannabis doesn't make me feel better in the direction I want, I don't want to keep it. And I'm somebody who's pretty accurate with those selections in the sense where I, I just, what I say is I'm market calibrated. And so for many years, the things that I choose to put in the market are successful. And so what it's done is it's allowed me to work with a tremendous number of gifted breeders and I can go through their material and I can find the one that I think really reflects what they're doing. And then I can introduce it to the market. The market accepts it. And what it does, it allows the breeder to get the credit because I don't take the credit for the creation. And it allows the market to be able to experience a very, very quality type of plant. And it lets these breeders get the credit they need so they can continue because that's how they get paid. So we get to work in this collaborative fashion. I breed also, but I breed more as a collector where I try to preserve genetics. And then I go through the collections and I look for specific cultivars, but I don't breed lines to sell to the public. I work with a tremendous number of breeders who do that. You can't be everybody, and I don't try to be. I try to do what I do, which is understand the market, find the correct genetic material, run it through the nursery, put it into the hands of the people, and then I do the R&D on it so I can find what did it do, what didn't it do, where does it do well, and how do we best present it? Where does it belong? Is it, does it belong in a medical market? Does it belong in what we would call the ethereal, the rec market? Does it belong as an extract? Is it best in tincture form? We try to de decide where does this material best fit, and then how do we get it into that production model? So what it does, it gives cultivators a diversity and an opportunity to be able to have more than one success point. That's the, the beauty of cannabis is that the things that I love that I've been holding for years, these old Afghani lines, these old African lines, stuff that's since the, say, late 70s, I still hold plants in clonal form from the late 70s. Nowadays, they're not as attractive because the numbers aren't as high and the market is driven off of numerics, but the quality of the effect is incredible. 
And I know that as we start to become more educated, these numbers and these perceptions of quality will change. These things will come back into vogue because when you consume it, you're in love with it. But if you see it on the shelf and it only says 14%, you don't think that it's powerful enough. And so I don't let the market tell me what I should smoke. I don't let rappers or movie stars tell me what I should smoke. And I try not to tell other people what to smoke. I try to present to them options and let them determine what they like. We try to help them understand how to really perceive the differences between what we would call indica and sativa because we know really those differences are perceived by ratios between specific terpenes. So the ratios between like limonene and carophylline really dictate is it a sedative or is it an ethereal, a stimulating effect? And as we start to become able to put this information into the public, it lets them make educated choices. It lets them experience cannabis in all these different realms. We don't want you to say, here, here's the 10 you get to smoke, make your choice. What you want to be able to do is understand that even though people have commonalities, similarities, we also have some real differences. And cannabis is one of those things that lets you find something within it uniquely suited to you. And once you have that ability, what I would hope is that you get to keep that plant, you get to cultivate it organically, you get to produce your own flower so that you're not uh, a slave financially to the system. And it allows you then to be able to enjoy cannabis in the way it's been enjoyed historically. And that's where you want to find what's best for you. And you'll start to say, hey, when I want to be uh, warm and, and, and relaxed, I smoke this. When I want to be talkative, I smoke this. When I'd like to be uh, really quiet and, and serene, I smoke this. And, and that's the beauty of cannabis is that you can find those things that make you feel that way. And that's why really it's important to always try to get yourself something that you really, really love. As a, your, This is like something you just love that variety. It just does something specific. And you hold that. You become the person who holds it. A good example is coral. Coral is uh, it's dying. The oceans are acidifying and the temperature is killing it off. But there's a massive collection of coral held privately by aquarium people. And so all these aquarius hold coral because they grow coral. And they're able to keep coral alive in their little mini world. And so lo and behold, there's this incredible coral collection around the earth of coral that used to exist that won't exist any longer. And not every person holds all of it, but each person holds some of it. And combined, you hold a lot. And to me, that's what I really want to see with cannabis is that we all hold on to some piece of it that's best for us. And then you know someone who has something that's best for them. And over the course of time, you can share or you can work on breeding projects. Or as we get into the, the understanding through science, we can go delve into it and find out why it does what it does. But we become the bank of this genomic form as the world starts to compress its agricultural space. And we're seeing it. We're, we're devastating the environment to produce some very specific things. And that's not healthy at all. And to me, with cannabis, it's something that I love so much. I would love to see people just keep one thing, one seed line. Some people are very good at what the market likes. Um, I think historically I've been accurate there with what I do, but it's because I, I can really separate myself from that position. I know what I like. I don't confuse what I want to consume for myself for what the majority want to purchase. And that pendulum of, of change swings. And so if we go back into the 70s, people were a lot more feel-good. It was the end of the Vietnam War. People wanted to express themselves. It was this, you know, one love. You get into 80s, all of a sudden the world kind of compresses again, and people no longer want to be so enhanced. It changes what they want to consume. And now with the opiate epidemic, people want to consume things that really mimic an opiate type high. And so as hopefully as the pendulum swings again and the world becomes a little better place, People will feel uh, happier and they'll want cannabis that isn't so heavy and sedative. They'll want stuff that makes them feel lighter, happier, more energetic. And that pendulum will swing. Just like plaid and, and polka dot, those things were, were in trend and styling. Now they're not, then they will. That's how I see it. That you just have to make sure you understand your place in time and why people do what they do so that you're able to give the majority what they want 
And then you make sure you hold the things that you love yourself back and you don't get rid of them because they're not trendy. They're trendy for you because all things will, will move through the cycle. That's why I hold varieties in these libraries for time because I know that it was unbelievably desirous at one point. That means that people did love it. Now, they might not love it today, but that's because of the, the social pressure. It's because economic pressures. It's because of change and good marketing. Good marketing drives sales. So once you start to see the pendulum swing again, those things will come back in vogue, but no one will have them. So that's why you have to be able to hold these things, because in the past, you could go to the country of origin and mine it. But now the country of origin has changed. The wars in the Middle East destroyed those countries. The cocaine in South America, Mexico destroyed the cannabis cultivation. Africa, same thing too. You know, it got, it got brutalized. You end up having this incredible compression of these genomic forms, and then now they're gone. So whoever's holding them in small form, just like the analogy with coral, the people who hold these pieces are going to be the ones who will repopulate the world as we go forward when we become a little bit more intelligent about not trying to destroy it while we're still living in it. What's happening in the next little year or more? I have a really nice farm that I built, and I would really love to start getting to work on the farm and get a chance to go back to doing what I love most, which is cannabis cultivation. So I have all these operations that I'm involved in, but my true desire is to get back to the farm. And that's where I'm happiest. It's what I like most. If I could do anything, it would be that. It'd be to wake up, cultivate on the farm. And I actually only want to run the farm, you know, from end of May to November. And then from November to May, it's, it's fallow. So that I can then go handle all the other things that I need to handle that I can't take care of during the farm season. But to me, that's a balanced life. If I could just work on the farm and then work on the lines and that, that work on my farm so I could make sure that I'm breeding plants that do well there, I'm able to preserve more material, and I'm able to learn more. The fact that we're globally exposed now lets us just be around some brilliant people. And so for me, I'm grateful that I get to be around people who are so smart so that it lets you understand why it is we do what we do, how do we do it better. How do we help other people in more efficiently? And that's what I want. I've had an unbelievable career, and I've been very fortunate to be able to still be here. As I get older, what I want is simpler. I realize that as you start to age, you know, you do. You just It's quality of life that becomes the most important. And money's needed because it's the grease that keeps the wheels turning. But it's not the only substance that matters the quality of what you do, the ability to, to be able to enjoy it. I, I want to be able to spend time with my family on the property. I want to be able to have my kids be around it in a way that is uh, no risk to them, which is really revolutionary now. Because uh, in the past, uh, very risky to have your family around operations. And now it's okay because of the permitting. So for the first time, you're able to normalize cannabis. And I wouldn't mind experiencing that and really get to see the farm become the closed loop picture that I wanted when I built it. If anybody wanted to reach you, how would connect with you? I'm Kevin Jodry on IG, and I also have my own website, kevinjodry.com. Through that, you can see all my speaking appearances, all the projects I'm working on. It's a great way to reach me there. The nursery is always covered, wonderlandnursery.com, wonderlandnursery on IG. But my, if you just type my name in, I use, I've used my real name my entire legal career, so it makes it easy for people to find me. So this way, what we can do is we can share the information because I realized a long time ago I was holding a bunch of it. I just wanted to be this link in this chain of eternity where I was a grower who connected to the growers from Afghanistan, from Africa, from India. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to just be somebody who was able to not damage the future and respect the past. To share the information is the only way to do it. It's with a lot of the projects now, we have NDs, things are proprietary. But if it's not sealed and signed, I share a lot. It, it allows me to be able to communicate with people that are coming up. It lets me influence younger cultivators. And it lets me pay homage to the people who came before us who gave everything for this. 
You know, I always say the same thing. Slaves smuggle this in their bodies to get it here, and they risk death. So whatever penalty we risk isn't really that big compared to that. And I know that, and I always want to be respectful to that because, to me, cannabis makes that happen for me. Thank you very much, Milton. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today, and I really look forward to uh, our friendship over time. And thank you to the audience. I hope you liked the episode. Until next time, stay uplifted.